Welcome to Coastal Noise number 69. Coastal Noise is now available on iTunes. Please go subscribe, leave a review, leave a comment, leave something. It would be hugely helpful. We do appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who's already subscribed and left some nice things to say. Very cool. You can also get Coastal Noise on the YouTube and as well as Google Play. And if you're an Android user, podcast addict. I'm going to be looking at other stuff. Android has a lot more applications, so I got to investigate that, see which way I'm going with it. Today on the show, we got Paul Armentano. He's the deputy director of Normal, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws, and also serves as a faculty member at Oaksterdam University. His writing and research have appeared in over 750 publications, scholarly and or peer-reviewed journals, as well as in more than a dozen textbooks and anthologies. He is a regular contributor to thehill.com, as well as to numerous other print and online publications, including Freedomleaf and Alternet.org. Mr. Armentano is the co-author of two books, which we'll talk about in the show, Marijuana Safer, So Why Are We Driving People to Drive? And uh, he's also, his most recent book, The Citizen's Guide to State-by-State Marijuana Laws. He is the 2013 Freedom Law School Health Freedom Champion of the Year and 2013 Alfred R. Lidsmith Award recipient in the achievement in the field of scholarship. So that's a little bit about Mr. Armentano. If you want to see the talking points, all the show notes are at coastalnoise.com slash podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, I'm going to have some links in the show notes. One of them is something we talk about in the episode, and it's a lecture of sorts that Paul gives, and it's called Facts Versus Fears. And it was a really good video. It's about 50 minutes to an hour long, and I used it to prepare for this interview and structure some of my questions. It's a very good watch. So if you enjoy this, I'd recommend going and checking out that as well. I'll also have links to Mr. Armentano's books if you're interested in checking out those. So here it is, Coastal Noise number 69 with Paul Armentano, Deputy Director of Normal. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Coastal Noise. This is episode number 69. On the line, I have Paul Armentano. He's the deputy director of Normal, which is the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. Mr. Armentano, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, since our time together is limited, I've gone ahead and provided an introduction of what Normal is, what your role with the organization is, um, some of your past work. So I'm just going to jump straight in. And before I do that, I want to give a little glimpse of what's been going on on the local level as far as marijuana reform is concerned here in our area. There's been a lot of interesting developments in the past couple weeks uh, that this show has oddly enough been in in the middle of. Um, I had David Elliott on recently. He is one of the longest on-air anchors for this local news organization we have, kind of the top dogs, WLOX News, and uh, has been working with them for 30 years came over, we recorded an hour half, and toward the last 10 minutes, we had to talk about marijuana legalization, and I posed the question to him, what are your thoughts on that, which he immediately said, legalize it, and, you know, him being the the news guy in our area, it was really uh, something, you know, everybody knows this guy, and he's coming out and opening up a conversation about it as a rational, well-informed adult, so I thought that was really interesting. Fast forward two weeks, I come back from a trip in Seattle where I see the legal marijuana market at play. I speak with some of the top operators in the industry and the same news organization, WLOX, posts a question on Facebook. Should we re-legalize marijuana? Encourages readers to answer yes, no, or just medical marijuana. And in the poll ends up about 24 hours later reading a 3,000 yes to like 150 no. 
with only about 400 of those yeses being strictly for medical marijuana. Furthermore, WLX was going out of the way to go on to the naysayers' comments and actually suggest how their arguments were misconstructed. So the biggest news organization around here posing these questions, getting massive positive feedback and going out of its way to educate those who are still opposed to as as an informed news organization. A few days later, I have the newly elected mayor of Ocean Springs, which is one of our local cities, come on the podcast. Young guy, about 30 years old. I found out that uh, he went on a news outlet and openly suggested Mississippi get on board with at least, at the very least, access to medical marijuana. So I invite him in the show. We talked for about 20 minutes on legalization and the benefits and everything. So coming full circle on this with all these things going on here in the Deep South, where everybody for years has said the South, the Bible Belt states, ultra conservatives, they'll be the absolute last to have anything to do with medical or recreational marijuana. So my first question to you, Paul, is in conjunction with all the momentum that's been being made in other parts of the country and with all that I've told you happening here, is it possible that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of this failed prohibition on marijuana? Well, let's be clear here. Support for the legalization and regulation of the adult use of marijuana is not a fringe issue. In fact, the majority of Americans and the majority of voters say that an adult ought to not face civil or criminal prosecution for the possession and use of marijuana. In fact, just days ago, Quinnipiac came out with its latest national poll that found 61% of voters in this country say the adult use of marijuana ought to be legal. 94% of voters, including over 90% of every demographic polled, say that the medical use of marijuana ought to be legal, and 75% of U.S. voters say that if a state legalizes marijuana for either recreational purposes or for therapeutic purposes, the federal government ought to have no business interfering with those laws. So let's be clear. The momentum is on our side. Public opinion is on our side, and this public opinion is nationwide. Yes, it may be true in the South that there remains political resistance to these changes at the legislative level, but I have no doubt that voters in the southeastern United States, just like voters elsewhere in this country, support marijuana law reform in large majority. Can you tell us what we're learning from states that have gone completely legal or from states that have a very progressive medical marijuana program? What do these states and their programs tell us about the regulated marijuana industries now that we have several years of legalization under our belt? Sure, that's a great question. We now have medical marijuana regulation in more than half of U.S. states, and in some cases, these programs have been ongoing now for some two decades, giving us a wide swath of time with which to assess their effects. With regard to the recreational use of marijuana or the regulation of the adult use of marijuana, we now have eight states in this country uh, that have done away or eliminated 
criminal penalties with regard to the adult use of marijuana and regulate the commercial production and retail sale of marijuana to those over the age of 21. So again, we have a large population base with which to assess how these policies are working. And the good news is, is that these policies are largely working as intended. We have not seen, for instance, in the 30 states that have enacted medical marijuana laws, beginning with California in 1996, not a single one of those states has ever gone back and recriminalized the use of marijuana. With regard to the nearly two dozen states, beginning with Oregon in 1973, that have decriminalized the possession of small amounts of marijuana, again, not a single one of those states has ever gone back and recriminalized marijuana. And when we look at the eight states where the adult use of marijuana is now legal, again, we see that those programs are expanding as the public, as politicians, as regulators understand the success of those programs. What we have not seen is we have not seen an uptick in young people's use or access of marijuana in jurisdictions where the plant is regulated. We have not seen adverse effects in the workforce or in the workplace. We have not seen adverse effects to traffic safety. What we have seen is that we can regulate and tax marijuana appropriately. We can keep it out of the hands of young people. That tax revenue from the production and sale of marijuana exceeds initial expectations and that we can reduce the harm associated with the use of opioids and other hard drugs in those jurisdictions by permitting the regulated access to cannabis. Those are some of the initial lessons that are being learned from this experience. Before we started recording, I had mentioned a video that I found of you from Googling your name. You gave about an hour-long lecture called Facts versus fears countering common misconceptions about medicinal cannabis. Um, I will put a link in the show notes on coastalnoise.com if anybody wants to check out that video. I highly recommend it. And you get very, uh, you get fired up in that video. You get your your passion for, for understanding the science comes out. I know you're very invested in that scientific research of marijuana and use those findings to educate people. To you, what are some of the most frustrating misconceptions people have about marijuana? The most frustrating aspect of marijuana policy in America is that certainly at the federal level, we do not have an evidence-based policy. We never have had an evidence-based policy. What we have instead is a marijuana policy that is 180 degrees removed from what the relevant science tells us. And until that fact changes, we are constantly going to be in this struggle. Arguably, the most common misconception that is out there is this notion that somehow we as a society 
just don't know enough about the health and social impact of marijuana use. There is this belief that we simply cannot amend state or federal policy until we know more about the impact of cannabis. That is simply not true. Outside of tobacco, marijuana and the marijuana plant remains the most studied plant on earth. If one goes to PubMed, which is the repository for all peer-reviewed scientific journal articles, and does a keyword search in that database using the term marijuana, you will find nearly 26,000 individual peer-reviewed studies specific to either marijuana or its endogenous components. That is more than twice the volume of literature dedicated to ibuprofen. It's more than the volume of literature available specific to Tylenol. It's more than 20 times the available literature as it pertains to hydrocodone or exponentially more than the available literature we have available for a prescription drug like Adderall. What we don't hear in the public's narrative is that we as a society don't know enough about drugs like Adderall or hydrocodone or ibuprofen, when in fact the reality is we know far more about cannabis and we have a longer history of human use of cannabis than we have with most other available conventional substances that humans consume every day. The problem isn't that we don't know enough about cannabis. The problem is we have public policies that are divorced from what the available science tells us. And from that same video that I was referring to, you had mentioned the the patients that were involved in the federal marijuana program that is also connected with Mississippi where, you know, there's the uh, federal grow up uh, around Old Miss. And there was a program that, uh, as I understand, still continues where they were providing patients with hundreds of marijuana products a month for decades. And if I recall correctly, you said that they were not even documenting on those cases. And it w- but eventually, there was research done on those individuals, and there was very interesting uh, information gathered from that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So under federal law, there can only be one licensed supplier of marijuana for clinical research. That licensed supplier is today and has always been the University of Mississippi. They've held that contract since the late 1960s. What that means is that any clinician or scientist who wishes to do a clinical protocol where under the auspices of that protocol, they will be administering marijuana to participants in the trial. It means that they must procure that marijuana from the University of Mississippi's marijuana farm. This would apply to researchers, even those who wish to do research in legal marijuana states. A a scientist or a clinician in Colorado, for instance, could not conduct a clinical trial 
to assess the safety and efficacy of marijuana using marijuana legally grown in Colorado. That would be in violation of federal law. They need to use the University of Mississippi's marijuana supply. And that is a supply that is used for the clinical trials that are done in America. Another purpose of that program is, as you stated, to actually provide marijuana for medical purposes to a handful of patients living in the United States that are part of a program known as the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. That program was set up in the mid-1970s to provide medical cannabis from the federal government that was uh, shipped to the Research Triangle Institute in North Carolina. That's where the... Uh, the uh, government's own cannabis is rolled in the marijuana cigarettes, and then they're shipped from RTI to a small number of patients, surviving patients living in the United States. These patients receive 300 marijuana cigarettes a month from the federal government for therapeutic purposes, and they've been receiving that uh, medical marijuana for many, many decades now. Despite the fact this program exists, the federal government has never done any research to study the effects of marijuana on this unique select population that arguably has been using greater quantities of marijuana and using them more regularly than any other people in America. So a handful of scientists affiliated with the University of Missoula in Montana several years ago, brought these people together, ran them through a series of different cognitive and physiological tests, essentially to see if their long-term use of inhaled marijuana had caused any potential damage, uh, either to their brain, to their lungs, to their immune system. Uh, and what they found was definitively that it had not, even again, in this select population that has been consuming high, uh, very large quantities of marijuana for a very long, uh, cons uh, consistent period of time. I think a big part of shifting the perception of marijuana is getting people to realize that the very foundation of this prohibition was built on, on lies and deceit in a lot of respects. Would you mind explaining to people some of the reasons why marijuana was made illegal in the first place and how men like William Randolph Hearst, Harry Anslinger exploited the plant for financial and political benefit, as well as maybe touching on the, the passing of the Controlled Substance Act of 1970? Sure. Cannabis prohibition didn't occur overnight. It evolved over time. And there's not sort of a one-size-fits-all explanation uh, with regard to the enactment of marijuana prohibition. Look, the first statewide law outlawing the possession of marijuana was enacted by Massachusetts uh, in 1913, I believe. California was the second state to prohibit the use of marijuana, and I believe it did so in 1914. Uh, the motivation behind lawmakers in Massachusetts and California to enact those public policies when they did were entirely different from one another. And the reasons between uh, the early 1900s and 1937, 
29 states in total decided to enact statewide marijuana prohibition. In many ways, those motivations were very different from state to state to state. As for the federal government making the determination in 1937 to enact the Marijuana Tax Act, which at that time was the first federal prohibition of cannabis, in that case, the federal government was simply following the lead of the state. And I think that is an important point to make clear. The federal government in this country has never led the way with regard to marijuana policy. It has simply followed the lead of the states. That was the case when the federal government finally stuck its toe in the marijuana prohibition business, and I think that is going to also be the case in the future when the federal government finally decides to get out of the marijuana prohibition business. But today, the reason that cannabis is illegal in American society is not because Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. It's because Congress in 1970 enacted the Controlled Substances Act. And at that time, it placed the marijuana plant and all of its organic constituents in the classification of Schedule One, which is the most restrictive and prohibitive classification of any controlled substance under federal law. As long as marijuana remains Schedule One under federal law, states do not have the autonomy to set their own marijuana policy. They will always be under the thumb and under the threat of the federal government. That's why Normal advocates that marijuana be descheduled, removed from the CSA altogether, as opposed to having it be rescheduled to some lower classification that we still believe would misrepresent the safety profile of cannabis. Alcohol and tobacco are not scheduled and regulated under the CSA. Marijuana shouldn't be either. I know we're limited on time here, so I'm going to pose two more questions to you. If people wanted to learn more about marijuana, its history, its benefits, could you recommend some books, documentaries, or articles that people could seek out to further their own knowledge base? Sure. Well, I'm the co-author of a book, Marijuana is Safer, So Why Are We Driving People to Drink?, published by Chelsea Green Press. In that book, uh, we outline not only the history of marijuana prohibition, but we lay out the arguments for reforming marijuana laws in the future. I would definitely encourage people uh, to check that book out. I would also encourage people to go to the normal website, which is really in many ways an encyclopedia uh, with regard to marijuana policy and marijuana science. I have been uh, part of Normal now for the better part of two decades, and I have been contributing uh, to the volume of literature on that site over that course of time. And it is really a unique resource when it comes to educating oneself about what the available science says with regard to marijuana use, its effects on the individual, and its effects on society. 
What do you recommend to citizens seeking change in areas, southern states particularly, where marijuana prohibition is still at its strongest? You know, as is the case when fighting for any sort of political or uh, cultural change, our primary hurdles remain willful ignorance and political inertia. And it's really up to us as citizens to hold our elected officials feet to the fire and to get them to comport public policy with so that it is now in line with rapidly changing public opinion and the rapidly changing cultural status of marijuana. Again, our politicians are not going to lead on this issue. They are going to follow. It's up to us as consumers, as concerned citizens, as patients, as civil libertarians, advocate for our own liberation and to compel our elected officials to implement the changes that we want to see. Deputy Director of Normal, Paul Armentano, thanks so much for coming on the show today, my friend. This has been a great conversation, and I really hope it reaches the right people and causes some waves. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me, and I uh, welcome coming back from that. All right, folks, please go and check out some of the resources that me or Paul have mentioned in this episode. Go visit normal.org, find out more about some of the things we're talking about. And yeah, definitely, Paul, I appreciate it. This has been a real treat for me. I could talk about this subject for hours, and I have a feeling you could also. So uh, please, anytime, if you'd like to come back on the show, we would love to have you again. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode, folks. To hear more podcasts, subscribe to iTunes, YouTube, Google Play. Of course, you can also go to CoastalNoise.com to listen there. Please leave reviews and comments. This helps us continue to grow. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.